We're in the middle, this is actually the, the middle of the middle, of a very short series that we're doing on repentance and forgiveness. Last week, Pastor Nick shared with us from Psalm chapter 51 uh, about repentance before God. Today, we're going to look at repentance towards others. And we'll be looking at part of the passage that Anthony has read to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So these two weeks, we're going to focus on repentance. Next week, we're going to focus on the opposite end, and that is forgiveness, forgiveness of others. That will be next Sunday from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 35. That will be next week. But as I said, today, our focus of attention is on repentance towards others. If I could form it into a question, what do I do when someone comes to me and says, you have done wrong? What do I do? At the same time, if you see someone else who is doing something wrong, And I'm not talking about people outside the church. I'm talking about people in the church. Fellow brothers and sisters that you see are doing something wrong. How do you approach them? Those are the two big questions that we want to deal with today. The title for the message today is Godly Grief versus Worldly Grief. There are two ways to feel sad about doing wrong. The first one Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7 is godly grief, but he also talks briefly about worldly grief. So you can feel sad when you do things wrong. I can feel sad when I do things wrong. But being sad isn't repentance. Being sad is being sad. And so there are two kinds of being sad, godly grief and worldly grief. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 13, we're going to look at those today. But before we do that, let's bow one more time for a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, that you have raised him to sit at your right hand to intervene for us even now as we speak to you. We pray today as we look at your word, this passage from 2 Corinthians 7. I pray that uh, when we are confronted with sin, that we would have the godly grief that Paul talks about in this passage. I pray that we would have our hearts open to the prompting of your Holy Spirit to recognize sin for what it is to be quick to make things right and to uh, be zealous to make things whole. I pray as we look at this passage that you would just open our hearts to understand your truth. I pray that you would cleanse my lips to speak your truth and that together we would see Jesus Christ lifted up and glorified and our hearts changed and make us salt and light in this community. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
As I was thinking about this concept of godly grief and worldly grief, it reminded me of a movie. Now, most of the time you think, oh, I'm talking about movies in church. But this, is, this movie is a Christmas movie that was made many, many years ago. Probably many of you have never heard of it. It's called A Christmas Story. It's about this little boy. You can see him. That's actually kind of what I looked like when I was a little boy. Um, but anyway, um, this movie was made in the 1980s, but the story itself takes place in the 1940s. And it's about a little boy who has a dream for Christmas. He's very excited about Christmas, and he wants to get a special gift for Christmas. And so every day he's constantly begging his parents for this Christmas gift. Unfortunately, the Christmas gift that he wants is a Red Ryder Ranger model air rifle pistol, or, or rifle. It's a BB gun. And his parents and all the people around him keep saying, oh, no, that's not a good idea. You'll shoot your eye out. You'll shoot your eye out with this BB gun. So anyway, that's the, the overarching story. Um, but it follows the adventures of this little boy with his friends through the month of December leading up to Christmas. And when I was preparing this sermon, it reminded me, the, the content of the sermon reminded me of one scene in this movie. The scene I'm talking about is around the middle of December, Ralphie, the little boy in the movie, he's walking to school with his friends. One of his friends' name is Flick. His other friend's name is Schwartz. And they're on their way to school, and they start talking about sticking their tongue on the flagpole. And if you've ever, if you're an adult or even have taken seventh grade science, you know that sticking your tongue on a flagpole, it's going to get stuck. It's going to stick. But these are little boys, and they don't understand that. So they go to school, and when they get to school, they go out for recess. And in recess, they're trying to encourage Flick to stick his tongue against the flagpole. Just do it. Just do it. Come on. I dare you. I triple dog dare you to do it. So finally, Flick gets up enough courage, and he sticks out his tongue, and he touches it to the flagpole. And when he touches it to the flagpole, guess what happens? It sticks. It sticks to the flagpole. And then what happens is the bell rings. So, just like little children do, the bell rings. You do whatever you're told, right? The bell rings. So all the kids run inside. And here's this little boy with his tongue, with his tongue stuck to the flagpole saying, Come back, come back, come back because his, he can't move because his tongue is stuck to the flagpole. So they go back inside, and class starts, and the teacher looks around the room, and Flick is missing. So she says to all the children, where's Flick? Flick doesn't appear. So she looks out the window, and she sees Flick is stuck to the flagpole. So she calls the fire department. The fire department grabs him, pulls him off. His tongue is bleeding. They wrap it all up. They bring him back into the class. This is the part that I want to focus on, is the teacher is very angry because 
these boys have dared him to do this. And so she wants them to feel sorry, to feel bad about what they've done. So she puts on her very best teacher voice and she says this to them. Now I know that some of you put Flick up to this, but he has refused to say who. But those of you who did it know your blame. And I'm sure the guilt you feel is far worse than any punishment you might receive. Now, don't you feel terrible? Don't you feel remorse for what you have done? Well, that's all I'm going to say about poor Flick. And so you think, oh, these little boys, they're probably going to start to cry and feel sad about what they've done. And the very next thing that comes on the screen is adult, the adult voice of the little boy, Ralphie, comes on and he says this. Adults love to say things like that, but kids know better. We knew it was always better not to get caught. Not to get caught. That is a very worldly kind of grief. <laughs> so our message today is about godly grief versus worldly grief. The teacher was trying to get them to say, oh, I made a mistake, I shouldn't have done that, I'm really sorry, I won't do it again. And their response is, I'm not saying anything. I'm okay, nobody knows it's me, I didn't get caught, good, good for me, good for me. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about this kind of grief, godly grief versus worldly grief in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. To understand what Paul is saying in this passage, we, we need to look very quickly at the context of Paul's interaction with the church because some of the things he says in this passage really depend on you understanding what's gone on before. So let me quickly share that with you. In the, in the fall of, of AD 50 to the spring of AD 52, that's the time that Paul spent with the Corinthian church, establishing the church. We know that from Acts chapter 18. Then a couple of years later, three years later, Paul writes them the letter 1 Corinthians because they're having some problems, there's divisions in the church, they have questions, other things. So Paul writes them this letter in the spring of 55. In the fall of 55 AD, they've received the letter, but they really haven't taken it to heart. And so Paul has to come and visit them again and do some really harsh talk with them to correct their behavior. And Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. He calls it his painful visit. After he leaves from this painful visit, sometime later that year or early in the next year, Paul or one of the representatives, Timothy or Titus, who he has left there, they get directly challenged, they get insulted, they get defied by someone in the church who is saying, Paul's an idiot. Don't listen to him. 
Don't do what he says. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. And so there's a direct challenge to Paul and the gospel message that he is sharing. So in the spring of 56, when Paul hears about this, he writes them something called the severe letter. He calls it that in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4. He says about this letter, this severe letter that he wrote to them, he says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So Paul hears about their struggle, he hears about their defiance, and he hears that they're shifting away from the gospel, and he writes them this letter. And so then he sends that letter with Timothy, but then he doesn't know how are they going to respond to this. How will they deal with it? Are they going to tell Paul to get lost? Are they going to do what Paul says? What will the result be? So in the summer of 56, three, four months later, Titus finally comes back and he meets with Paul in Macedonia to report to Paul what happened when they received the letter, that severe letter for what they had done wrong. And Titus tells Paul that they have responded and they have repented and they have done the right thing. So it's at that point that Paul, in the fall of 56, writes to them the letter of 2 Corinthians and sends it by way of Titus and two others. And so what we are going to read through today is that letter reviewing what has happened. Paul was attacked. He wrote them a letter to say, stop doing that. They've responded, and now he's writing this letter in response to all of those things. So our text today, as I said, is 2 Corinthians 7, 8 to 13. And we're going to look at this area of godly grief. So verses 8 through 9a is going to talk about the need for godly grief. Verses 9b through 10 is going to talk about the contrast of godly grief with worldly grief. And finally, verses 11 to 13a is going to talk about the results from godly grief. So let's look at the text. The first point, the need for godly grief, verses 8 and 9. Let me read those for you. Starting at verse 8, Paul says to them, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, remember this is the letter, the severe letter he had to write to them when they were moving away from the gospel and challenging him. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. You think, what's wrong with Paul? He just says he doesn't regret it, but he did regret it. What is he talking about? He doesn't regret it because of the result that he brought, that it brought when he wrote that letter. But what Paul is trying to indicate here is when he says, though I did regret it, I'm sure when he was writing the letter, 
He was in fear and trembling, wondering how they would respond to this letter. He himself calls it the severe letter. He really had to tell them, you're doing something wrong. You need to smarten up. You need to change what it is that you're doing. So he says, I did regret it. It wasn't something that he enjoyed doing. It wasn't something that came out of anger. It came out of concern for them. But he doesn't regret it now. Why? For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. So for the rest of this section, Paul is going to play on this idea of regret and grief. And within the idea of grief, he's going to play off worldly grief and godly grief. Paul had some regret. They had some regret. They had some grief. Paul had some grief. But by the end, we're going to see that all were comforted. So Paul has some regret for hurting them without yet knowing the result. But once uh, Titus comes back to him and reports to him that they have responded, now he has no regrets for what he has done because the letter grieved them. And not only did it grieve them, it grieved them into repentance. That is what verse 9 says. As it is, I rejoice. So moments ago, he was regretting, he was upset, he was worried. But hearing the report of Titus, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. There are always those kinds of people that when something bad happens to somebody else, they like to do, what's that guy's name on The Simpsons, Nelson? (laughs) (laughs) They always feel like they revel in other people's sorrow, other people's pain. And you see these things on TV sometimes where you know people slip on the ice and fall and people laugh and I think, why are you laughing? This is terrible. But Paul is rejoicing. He is not rejoicing because they were grieved. He's not saying, ha ha, I made you feel bad, losers. He's rejoicing not because they felt sad but because their sadness, their grief, led them to repent. Godly grief always leads to repentance. That's what we're going to see as we move into point number two. The contrast of godly grief with worldly grief. Verses 9b to 10. And here's where Paul uses the phrase, starting at 9b. For you felt a godly grief. Now, understand what he means by this phrase, godly grief. He's not saying it's a holy grief. He's saying a grief towards God. So their grief isn't special in the sense that it's some sort of holy grief. 
It's that they have grief and recognize that they've done something wrong against God. And they feel sorry to God. That is what makes the grief godly. They have sorrow, they have sadness, because it has disturbed their relationship with God. That's where the sadness comes from. You felt a grief towards God. You were sorry. for You felt sad because this disturbed your relationship with God. But because this grief led to repentance, you suffered no loss through us. The grief is sadness. The grief recognizes an injury to the relationship with God and with Paul. But the repentance is the tool that moves grief towards God from simply being tears to bringing a positive result. And so that's why Paul is able to say, you suffered no loss through us. Paul wasn't doing this to be mean. Paul wasn't doing this to feel happy because they were sad. Paul's not doing this out of vengeance to say, you made me feel bad, so I'm going to make you feel bad. That's not what this is about. Paul, when he wrote the letter, was in fear and trembling because he didn't know how they would respond. And his number one concern was that they would recognize they had done wrong and they would repent. And that's exactly what they did. So they felt a godly grief. And because that godly grief turned them towards repentance, turned them towards saying to God, And to Paul, we're sorry for what we have done. Because they were willing to do that, they suffered no loss. There is no permanent damage done because of what Paul did in writing this letter to them. And then in verse 10, he makes the contrast between these two kinds of grief. He says in verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Well, how does that work? How does worldly grief produce death? And how does godly grief produce salvation without regret? Well, as we've been saying, godly grief really means grief towards God, a recognition that the relationship that I have with God has been damaged by what I have said or what I have done. And it's not simply a feeling of sadness. It is a feeling of sadness that leads me to say the two most powerful words in English. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And not only to say the words I'm sorry, but to make a change. That's what the word repentance means, to make a change. To stop doing one thing and turn around and do the opposite. 
So when Paul confronts this church about their sin of turning away from the gospel message, of insulting him, of turning their backs on him, of wounding him, he's not concerned about himself. He's going to say that a couple of verses later. He's not concerned about himself. What he is concerned about is their souls, is their relationship with God. And so he writes to them this severe letter so that they will experience the godly grief that they need, which will lead them to repentance. And when it leads from repentance, the final result will be salvation. And that salvation comes without regret. In other words, the godly grief doesn't lead to nothing. And that's the problem with worldly grief, is worldly grief doesn't change. It doesn't do anything. Worldly grief feels sad. But sadness is not repentance. I remember one time when I was a little boy, playing in the backyard with my sister. And we were playing... And she did something I didn't like, so I hit her. I was like five years old. I've never hit her today. Police would come if I hit her today. But we were little kids, five years old. She was three years old. She did something I didn't like, so I slugged her. So she cried, and she went in the house and told my mother. You know what I did? I started to cry. Because I knew what was coming. My mother was going to come out. I was going to get a spanking. And so when my mother came out of the house, I was crying, oh, this is so terrible. This is terrible. And what I was crying about was I knew I was going to get spanked. So my mother said to me, do you feel bad about what you did to your sister? And this little evil light went on in my head. And I said, yes, I do. And she said, oh, well then, I'm not going to punish you because you feel sorry for what you did. I didn't feel sorry for what I did. I was just trying to get out of getting punished. That is worldly grief. Worldly grief leads to death. Why? Because there's no repentance. Worldly grief is about denial. I didn't do anything wrong. You can't catch me. I didn't do anything wrong. Worldly grief can also be the kind of grief where you know that what you're doing is wrong, but you don't change it. This often leads to frustration. I know that what I'm doing is wrong, but I can't help it. I'm not going to change. Worldly grief can also be embarrassment. I got caught. People saw me, and now I feel bad, and I'm going to cry, because now, you say in Chinese, I feel shame. I feel shame. No change, no repentance, no resolving of the problem, just feeling bad. So worldly grief only leads to regret. It doesn't lead to change. It doesn't fix anything. And so the ultimate 
destination of that is death because the sin is not reconciled. The sin is not corrected. The, the offense is not dealt with. So the stakes here are very high. Paul is not simply talking about a minor disruption in the church. They had challenged the message of the gospel. They had challenged him. He had to write them this letter to tell them this needs to stop. They responded with sadness for what they had done, but that led them on to repent. And that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief, all there is is I feel bad, but it doesn't change, and that only leads to death. Another example from this in the New Testament is the rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what do you think? So he lists all the wonderful things he's done. I don't steal, I don't commit adultery, I don't do all these things. But Jesus knew his heart. So Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. The word for sorrowful there is the exact same word that Paul uses here in 2 Corinthians 7. I could translate it this way. When the young man heard this, he went away with worldly grief, for he had great possessions. Here's a guy who had lots of stuff, lots of money. And Jesus said to him, what you need to do is get rid of that and follow me. And he went away sad because he was not willing to give it up. He would rather die than give up what he had. That is worldly grief. So the last section, Paul is going to give us Seven results, and I'll go through them very quickly. Seven results of what godly grief brings in verse 11 and 12. Let me read them for you. The first one, verse 11, he talks about how their godly grief led them to respond, led them to change, led them to repentance. Verse 11, he says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. This idea of earnestness, what does that mean? I've got a heading there. Seriousness of purpose. When you have godly grief, you want to get the problem solved. You don't wait. You don't put it off. You don't delay There is earnestness. There is seriousness of purpose. That's the first one. Number two, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. In other words, godly grief that leads to repentance, not only does it not put it off, it's sincere about making things right. Let's get this settled. Let's get this done with. Let's make things right. Number three, 
What indignation. What indignation. What is Paul talking about here? There, when there is a godly grief about sin, it's really expressing, repentance is really expressing a healthy disgust for sin. Disgust for what has happened. Disgust, in this context, disgust with the wrongdoer who has challenged Paul. Disgust with their own response in not uh, disagreeing with him or uh, saying that he's wrong or anything like that. There's just a recognition that this is bad. This kind of thing should not happen. Sin is bad. Next he says, what fear? What fear? And what I think Paul is talking about here is they recognize that the stakes are high. That there is real danger here. You don't play around with sin. We say in English, when you play with fire, you get burned. When you play with sin, you die. The fear that they experienced in their godly grief showed them the real danger that they were in and they recognized the seriousness of sin so that they dealt with it. Next he says, what longing. And what he's talking about there is they recognized that they had disturbed their relationship with God, they had disturbed their relationship with Paul, and now they have a strong desire to see that relationship restored. There's a longing, there's a recognition that this has caused a disruption, that our relationship is not what it could be or should be. And so there's a strong desire to see their relationship with Paul and their relationship with God restored to what it should be. Two more. Next one, number six. What zeal? What zeal? Not only do they want to make things right, they want to make things right quickly, they are excited to make things right. There is a zeal, there is a passion, there is a recognition that wrong has been done and right must be done to replace it. There is a godly grief that leads to zeal. Lastly, I really don't like the English translation of this last one. He says, what punishment? Really what Paul is trying to get across with this is as I said before, he's not excited to see them be punished. What This is not a desire for vengeance. What Paul is really saying is, you demonstrated a sincere desire to see justice done. In fact, when Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 about this severe letter, one of the things he says to them is, don't punish the wrongdoer or, or don't punish the wrongdoer too much because you don't want to overpunish him and cause such a division in, in the church because that is what Satan loves, is to create division in the church. Once he has been punished, recognize that he, and he recognizes he has made a mistake, 
then you need to restore him. So Paul is commending them here in chapter 7, not because they are vengeful, but because they want to see justice done. And so he concludes in verse 11. At every point, you proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Now, innocent, usually in English, means you didn't do anything wrong. But what Paul is saying, by showing your godly grief and by doing these seven things that you did in your repentance, you have shown that you have made things right. And when things are made right, you are now innocent in the matter. So Paul concludes in verse 12. So, although I wrote to you this severe letter, this letter that I was in fear and trembling to write to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong. Nor was it for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. In other words, Paul isn't primarily concerned just about the guy who challenged him. He's not even concerned about himself or Timothy or Titus or anyone that was there that received the insult. That's not his primary concern. But he concludes verse 12 by saying, The reason that I wrote you was in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. You know what that means? What Paul is saying is, I did this not so that I could have vengeance, not so that that guy would be punished, not so that I could feel better. I wrote the letter to you so that you could show yourselves to be true followers of Jesus. So that you would demonstrate not only to me, not only to the wrongdoer, but also to God that you love him and that you love us. And so Paul concludes, therefore, we are comforted. Paul doesn't care about his own feelings. Paul doesn't care too much about the wrongdoer. What he cares about is this church. He loves them and he wants to see them right with God. Therefore, we are comforted. So Paul had a problem with this church. He had to write them a letter to tell them what was wrong. They responded to that letter with godly grief, which led to repentance, which brought salvation. So what is the application for us here at Arendelle Bible Chapel. Two questions. 
that I'd like you to ask yourself that I need to ask myself. Number one, how do I respond? How do you respond? How do I respond when I am confronted with sin in my life? How do I respond when I am confronted with sin in my life? Do I show worldly grief, resentment, bitterness, excuses, rationalization, false denial, or even worse, apathy? I don't care. Doesn't matter. It's all right. That's worldly grief. Paul has already told us that leads to death. How do I respond when I am confronted with sin in my life? I need to respond with grief towards God. I need to repent. I need to turn around. I need to make a change. Why? Because in doing doing so, it shows a desire for holiness. It shows that God has done a work in my heart. It shows that I am a child of God. And it's not only for me. Godly grief that leads to repentance is good for the whole body. Paul did this because he wanted the church to be whole. He didn't want the church to have allow Satan to have a foothold, an opportunity to cause more division and separation. Godly grief leads to repentance, which leads to unity. It allows the church to come together and be one because there's no hidden resentments. There's no backstabbing. There is no, I don't like you, but I'm not going to tell you kind of talk. Because things are made right. How do I respond when I am confronted with sin in my life? Question number two, last question. Am I willing to confront sin in others the way that Paul did? I may be really good at pointing out faults in other people. You did that wrong. You did that wrong. You did that wrong. You did that wrong. It's easy to point fingers. It's easy to find fault. But am I willing to confront sin in others the way Paul did? What do I mean by the way Paul did? Am I willing to confront others with careful consideration and compassion. When Paul wrote that letter, he was worried. He was concerned. He wasn't out for vengeance. He was concerned about the spiritual health of those people he was writing to. It, he didn't pull any punches. He calls the letter a severe letter. He tells them straight what they needed to hear, but he does it with careful consideration and compassion. 
Secondly, he does it to bring restoration and healing. It's not about just punishing and making somebody feel bad and kicking them out of the church. It's about restoration and healing and making things right. And ultimately, as Paul says at the end of the third section that we looked at, when Paul confronts, it is done so to confirm true righteousness in others before God. When I confront other people, what is my expectation? Is it to make them feel bad? To make them run away? Or is it in the hope that they will repent and show their true righteousness before God? Am I willing to confront sin in others the way Paul did? Worldly grief leads to death, but godly grief leads to repentance, which leads to salvation with no regret. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that there is forgiveness, that when we repent, you hear and answer our prayers. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Your word in Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. If we thought that you would just obliterate us or destroy us if we confessed our sin, we would never come to you. But because you are kind and willing to forgive, I pray that just as your word says, that we would be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, even as Christ, for our sake, has forgiven us. We thank you that repentance is available Help us to have the godly grief that Paul talked about that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. For your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.